Okay. Now turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. Your copy of God's Word. John 2, verse 6. So this morning we are going to continue our look at Jesus' first miracle as recorded by John. The water turned into wine, but today we're actually going to look at the miracle itself. Just as we looked last week to the lead up to it. So last week, think about it like this. Last week what we did was we went to NASA and we got to see behind the scenes and look at all of the systems and the computer networks and, and how each crew does each thing in order to make the mission safe and to make it launch and bring them back and how what the guys at the desk do and all that kind of stuff. But today, we're actually going to go to the pad and watch the rocket launch. That's what we're going to be doing today. So we're going to do it like this. We're going to run through the passage, these few verses, verse by verse, point some things out that are key for us to see. Then we're going to look at five implications from this text. That there are five implications that we can draw from Jesus' first miracle that are critical for us as Christians. So let's backtrack a little bit. Go back to verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Remember, we looked at last week. Mary, she's concerned with the public shame for the couple, but we can also probably surmise that she has a concern for the eternal hopelessness of all people. That her relationship to Jesus, remember, in that moment it changed. It's no longer mother to son, but sinner to savior. And that had to change. She had to change in that way. She has to submit to Jesus as her Lord because she understands who he is. We looked at what she knew about Jesus. And she's lived her whole life in submission to the Lord. So therefore she turns over the wedding debacle that's in front of them to Jesus. And she merely just tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And we looked at that and more last week saying, do anything that he tells you. Leaving Jesus to do whatever he will do. She didn't know what he would do or what he would want to do. She just said, do whatever he does. Not because he needed her to release him to do his own will, but because she submitted to him as the possessor of the sovereign will, as one who is truly God. Now look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So much has been made about the number of the jars. Number six, that's supposedly the number for incompleteness in kind of the Jewish world. And we can over-exaggerate that kind of thing, looking at numbers and things like that, with seven being the number of completion. I think we, at times we can get distracted by that and look at things in an unhelpful way. But this can be a helpful insight uh, when we look at it like this, that it's true to note that the plan of redemptive history was incomplete until Jesus arrives. That that is true. It's also true to note that the Jewish purification code was always lacking and incomplete. The purification code that these jars were for, that was always lacking and incomplete. None of those sacrifices and none of those rites for purification were ever going to be enough to save them. Look at Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. For since the law, Old Testament Jewish purification stuff, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed 
would no longer have any consciousness of sin? If they worked, would you have to redo them? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So these six jars here at this wedding, they're a reminder of the impotence of the law to save. Doing the right things cannot save you. Every time someone had to go to those jars and use them and go through the purification ritual of cleansing their hands or whatever it is that they were having to do, they were reminded that they were impure, just like they were the last time they did that. They were impure the last time they went to those jars, just like every animal sacrifice reminded them, I am a sinner who needs his his or her sin paid for by something else's blood every time. What they needed was a sacrifice, a cleansing ritual that worked once for all. And that's what Jesus is. He is that sacrificial cleansing that purifies for all eternity. This is the passing of the Moses and the Old Covenant to Jesus and the New Covenant beginning to take place. Now, before we leave these jars, they fit 20 to 30 gallons, 20 to 30 measures, or two or three measures is what it actually is. Uh, but that, that 120 to 180 gallons of water is what we're talking about here. So in verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now Mary left Jesus to do whatever he would do. She just told the servants, do whatever he says. And it turns out what he wanted to do was go ahead and address this wine shortage problem. And the servants took Mary's advice. Now, we, we, when we read stories like this that are so familiar, we have to do everything we can to come at it fresh. We, when we're so familiar with this, we just think, yeah, of course they obeyed and did what he said because he's Jesus. But why would they obey him? Put yourself in the actual scenario. You are the employee of the wedding party. The groom has hired you and you work for the head steward of the ceremonies. And then some woman tells you, do whatever my carpenter son says to do. Why would you do that? <laughs> like why on earth at, at your child's wedding, do you want the caterers to do whatever the whim of some random attendee says to do? I mean, let's put ourselves in the actual moment. So either Mary's involved in the hosting somehow, and they're like, oh, okay, this must be in line with that. This must be important. Or this is just an example of Jesus' divinity, and they obey. Regardless, now we got 180 gallons of water in stone jars. Perhaps these servants obeyed as an object lesson for us. Remember that guy I've told you about a couple of times, J.C. Ryle? If you don't have two initials in front of your name, you're just not that important. C.S. Lewis, J.C. Ryle, R.C. Sproul, J.I. I mean, just you're nobody if you go by your first name. But the J.C. Ryle in 1800s was a pastor in England. He said this, these simple words describe the duty of all who work for Christ and especially of ministers and teachers. They are to hear Christ's voice and do as he tells them and then leave the result to him. Duties are ours. Events are God's. It is ours to fill the water pots. It is Christ's to make the water wine. Verse 8. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Again, why are they listening to Jesus? These servants, these catering employees. They weren't there when John declared him to be the Son of God, but yet they're obeying him. See, what does he tell them? Hey, Go to your boss and take him a ladle full of water. 
Now, if you're one of them and you're like, man, if all you wanted me to do was give my boss a scoop of water, why did you need 180 gallons of it? They're, they're just following it. What does this carpenter know about professional hospitality in a culture where fumbling hospitality could be detrimental to you in the honor-shame dynamic we talked about last week? And, and at this Jewish wedding feast, would these servants just be sitting around doing nothing? Eh, we don't have anything to do. No, they're, be, they're being distracted from what their boss has told them to do to obey the words of this 30-year-old carpenter, as far as they know. But they do it. They just take away from their duties and do it. Look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Here's the miracle. So somewhere between the walk from the pot with a ladle full of water to the master of, the head, of ceremonies, the head steward, the water turns into wine. Somewhere in there. When they drew it out, it was water. When the master tasted it, it was wine. And the master of the feast had no clue where it had come from. As far as he knew, they were out of wine. He's very aware of the situation. And all he does is just serve whatever the groom provides. And he knows that what the groom provides had run out. And so now the master of the feast wants to talk to the groom. Verse 10. And said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. What's the master of the feast really saying to this groom? If the stuff we served earlier was your cheap wine, then you must be crazy wealthy. Because this stuff is way better. The groom just saved face in a huge way in that honor-shame culture. Remember that if he had blundered this moment, his wife's family could sue him. And so he just saved face in a huge way. And the master of the feast, he's looking at the groom like he's just pulled off a huge social coup. That he's like, man, so you took the normal thing that people do and, and then you exploded it to just display how great and wealthy and awesome and capable you were to provide for your family. He's, he's just impressed at this guy's essential worldly prowess. The normal social protocol was to give the good wine earlier on. And when people have filled themselves up, the, the weeks dragged on, then you would give them the cheap stuff. And they won't care as much, probably because a good many of them won't even notice because they've been drunk for about six days. Now that's, that's actually the word that's used when it says drunk freely. That word is most often used in the New Testament in Greek to describe drunkenness. So what we, as a side note, oftentimes when we see something here in the scriptures and it has some kind of ancient Jewish heritage, we immediately associate it with good. But merely appearing in the pages of the scriptures is not God condoning that that's what's okay and that Jesus was supplying their drunkenness. This is a probably unbelieving head steward just commenting on the social norms for the day for weddings. And we can look at our social norms for weddings and see a lot to reject, can we not? So the same thing can be done for the Jewish weddings. The compliment, though, of the master to the groom, it boils down to this. Wow, you must be really rich and powerful because you can afford to give away at the end of the wedding week 180 gallons of absolutely premier wine. So we shouldn't hang too much on the words of the master of the wedding feast. He's mainly, his main role in the story is to serve as a verifying, impartial third party to the miracle. That the reader can look at and go, okay, this guy is a wine connoisseur 
he has nothing to be gained by making sure that this groom stays looking great. He doesn't even know who Jesus is, but he knows good wine. Professionally, he knows good wine. And he says it's better than whatever he had had before. So he's a miracle verifier. That's what he really serves as. So this miracle then shows that what Jesus does is better. Jesus' way is better. The grand overabundance of the good wine should tell us that in this new day, this new covenant that Jesus is ushering in, an abundance of that which is rare and expensive, not materially, but what God's goodness does is when it comes to us, it is abundant and overflowing that the way of the stone water pots for ritual cleansing is making room for the new day of the blood of the new covenant. Jesus is pure wine. Now look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this wedding, according to verse 11, this miracle is three things. It's the first miracle he did and manifests his glory and it cements his disciples' belief in him. Now let's look at five implications from this text, this very familiar text. The first implication we can draw from this is that a divine statement by God upon marriage. A divine statement upon marriage. We can't miss the setting of this miracle. God chose to make himself known as Messiah at a wedding on purpose. He doesn't do anything accidentally. And it's a private wedding in a rural region. He could have chosen a dozen other events to display his messianic revelation. That the Messiah is here now. He chooses a wedding. A simple implication we can draw from this is that our marriages matter. Now we know that, of course, but human marriages matter to God and often we don't think that way. They matter so much that he chose to reveal himself as God in flesh at the beginning of a marriage. Think of how Jesus entered humanity. He entered humanity as a member of the nuclear family. How did Jesus manifest himself as God and open his ministry to the public? At the beginning of a new nuclear family. This is how God is choosing to do these things. He's inaugurating his public ministry with a family. Jesus has kind of come into the world in a myriad of different ways. He could have come into public eye in a myriad of different ways, but he chose a wedding. Nothing that God does is incidental, accidental, just not that big of a deal. God's like, ah, I don't really care about that detail. Could have been a wedding, could have been a birthday party, could have been a bar mitzvah. It doesn't matter. He chose a wedding on purpose. And if he purposed to attach himself to marriage in his incarnation and introduction, what are we to draw from that? In his incarnation at birth and his introduction here in, at Cana, that marriage matters, the family matters to God. We cannot believe the lie from the world that marriage is insignificant and monogamy is unnatural. We have to reject that lie wholesale. By his first miracle, Jesus puts his stamp of approval on a marriage between one man and one woman for life when we know that that is the Bible's and thus God's only acceptable context for sexual expression and activity. That's the only one. If Jesus acted in time and space to keep this young couple from getting off to a rocky start in marriage, that the miracle did indeed lead to that. And the bridegroom knew about it. The groom knew about it. 
then we as his church must fight to uphold the biblical definition of marriage. Certainly among our ranks as the church. And when we fight to uphold biblical marriage, we walk in Jesus' footsteps. We also walk in the footsteps of John the Baptist, who in Matthew 14 and Mark 6, he's beheaded. And we know the story about John the Baptist being beheaded, correct? Do you know what he was beheaded for? He told Herod, you can't marry that woman. John the Baptist is ultimately beheaded for upholding and fighting for a biblical definition of marriage to a pagan. That's what gets him killed. So obviously this is a significant reality for Jesus to attach himself to it. But what he's also saying is he's pointing us that his introduction into public ministry is at a wedding. It's pointing us to the ultimate culminating wedding that Jesus is a part of. But in that wedding, Jesus is the groom and we are the bride. Look at Revelation 16, or rather 19, verse 6. This is at the end. This is John. So John wrote John 2 and John wrote Revelation 19. Same guy connecting these weddings. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is Jesus. The bride of Christ is us, the church. This moment is happening in the future. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And an angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There is a greater marriage coming. It's not insignificant that Jesus would make himself known at a wedding because there's an ultimate wedding coming between Jesus and his elect, those who have trusted and believed in him. So what you should read in this and then connect it to Revelation 19 is, am I going to be invited to that wedding? Am I going to be a part of that wedding? Because Jesus, like all husbands, only has eyes and love for his wife. So if you are not a part of his bride, then you are not a recipient of his love. And the way to become that is to believe in him, to trust in him, to join his bride. It's interesting to think that the Bible begins with a marriage in, in a paradise, Adam and Eve, correct? And the Bible ends with a marriage in a new paradise between Christ and the church. And in the middle of that, in the first coming of the Messiah, he makes himself known at a marriage. If we can't miss the significance of this, we'd be wise to take note of it. Second implication that we can draw from this text is Jesus' power over nature. Jesus displays his divinity in this miracle. He has the power to create. He has the, tire, he has the power to take something and make it into something entirely different. He has the power to change the fundamental elements of the periodic table into whatever he wants them to be. Only God has power over creation. Only he has the power to dictate that elements on the periodic table change. Now, Jesus didn't have to concentrate real hard to do this. It wasn't like he said, okay, now scoop that water out, and then he's just staring at that ladle all the way to the head waiter, or he's like summoning the powers that exist in the universe. All he has to do is will it to be so, and then it's so. 
And what is fundamentally one thing changes into fundamentally a different thing instantaneously because he's God. Something else on this point we must not overlook, that he has the power to create with the appearance of age. How old was that wine before the head waiter, the head steward, the master of ceremonies, how old was it before he drank it? Milliseconds old. You could have counted the milliseconds of how old that wine was. But nevertheless, when he drank it, what did he say? This wine is better than what you served earlier. Now, what makes wine better? Just elemental knowledge. Age makes wine better, right? You've got to let it sit longer in order for it to taste better. How long did Jesus let that wine age? Milliseconds. But a, un, an impartial third party said, this is the better wine of all that's been coming out this week. So if you had taken that wine and put it under a microscope in a lab, what would it have said? This is very old and aged wine. But Jesus can create with the appearance of age. Now Jesus does other miracles very similar to this. When he heals the paralytic, what happens? Does that guy, does Jesus just magically, or not magically, miraculously reconnect his spinal cord? And then he's like, wow, I can feel my feet. And now I got three, four good years of rehab to build up muscle so that I can actually carry the weight of my own body. No, he gets up and picks more weight up, rolls up his bed. And it wasn't a feather down, you know, light backpack style sleeping bag. This is a pallet in the first century. He's got to pick that up and then he just hops and skips down the road as if his legs had the muscle to be able to do it. He creates with the appearance of age. Now, why does this matter? Because our world, the planet we live on, looks old to scientists when you put it under the microscope. But our Bible says that God created in six days. Is that a contradiction? No. Because he can create with the appearance of age. God can create instantly aged-looking things. How old are Adam and Eve when he tells them to procreate? Minutes? Hours? Less than that? He creates them as post-pubescent adults told to procreate. And they can. And they're in a garden with full-grown trees and animals walking all around. Right there. So he can create with the appearance of age. Jesus displays there, then here, his creative power, which only belongs to God, which fits John's overall theme. A third implication of this text is that Jesus can care for the minuscule without forsaking the majestic. He can care for the minuscule without forsaking the majestic. Jesus has actual real concern for the shame of this groom. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. He does care about what could come down on this groom. Jesus himself is a groom and know that he's, he's headed for a lifetime or headed for three years of shame. And he's taken upon himself shame by even becoming flesh. So he's the groom who ultimate was, ultimately was shamed, but on his wedding day, he will not be. We saw that in Revelation 19. So he does care for this groom in time and in space. What, he's gonna, what that groom could potentially go through doesn't matter for eternity, but it matters to him now. And Jesus can care for those things that matter to us now, even though when we were to look back from the 30,000-foot view, we would go, yeah, that actually wasn't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of eternity. But when you're in it, you can't think like that. Jesus can minister to us in those moments without forsaking the majestic. God can meet little needs and address little concerns without bailing on his bigger picture. 
if these people actually did run out, out of wine, it would have no eternal consequence. It's not gonna, God's not going to go, hey, all right, we got the judgment seat of the, the lamb here. But what about that wedding? How did that go? Oh, it stinks for you. You could have got in if you had just had wine at the wedding. No, no, no. That's not going to have any eternal significance for them. But it, was, it felt weighty to them. It felt like a tragedy. But nevertheless, Jesus still cared for them in that hysteria without forsaking his bigger plan. So this is where the best way I can think about it like this is, is my own dad parenting me in sports. So I would be like, man, I'm not good enough at baseball. Or I'm not good enough at football. My dad would hit me hours of ground balls, hours of fly balls, throw me batting practice for hours and, and catch for me as a pitcher until it got too dangerous for him. So I got to where I could throw a little harder. And he would still do that. And then in football, he would punt me uh, footballs for hours so I could practice catching them and running them back. And he would run routes so that I could throw the routes and practice as a quarterback for hours and hours and hours. He would do that. But you know what his main concern for me always was? Not that I would become an elite athlete, but that I would become a godly man. He would always say, I care far more about your character than I do about your performance on the field. I care more about your character than I do your talent. He never once chewed me out for playing bad. Never once commented on my poor athletic performance. However, he did chew me out acting like a prima donna and bragging to all my friends about how good I was. He did jump all over me when he uh, saw me just talking and tooting my own horn. So he could care about my desire to be a good athlete without forsaking the, the greater, the truer goal, the longer term reality of becoming a godly man. And that's what Jesus can do here on a much bigger scheme, obviously. I can care about your moment here at the wedding, this little miniature crisis that it feels like you're having without forsaking the greater. Jesus in this miracle is still calling us to see the bigger picture, the symbolism of spiritual barrenness, the lack of wine, i.e. the lack of God's blessing. F.F. Bruce, again, two initials. That's why you know he's a superstar. He said in his commentary, he said, Christ is changing the water of Jewish purification into the wine of the new age. So if we're to stop and we only see water turning into wine, we miss the grander narrative. We miss the bigger picture. Jesus isn't worthy of our worship because he can do miracles. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he's the culmination of redemptive history as the Messiah of God. Now God had been unfolding his plan to save his elect since Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, God's cursing Adam and Eve and the serpent, and he says that the, the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. We know biologically women don't have seed. He's talking about a virgin-born one who will crush the head of the serpent, meaning eliminating evil and its chief propagator, Satan, in one fatal blow. And that one is the Jesus of Nazareth. See, our greatest problem is not that we ran out of wine. Our greatest problem is not that we're behind on rent. Our greatest problem is that we could be those who are permanently excluded from the promised land flowing and layered with expensive things that are commonplace like golden streets and wine on the hilltops. That it's just, it's just everywhere. That we could miss that land. And our greatest problem is our sin. Jesus symbolizes with water into wine what he does for human souls. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. That's what you need to have happen. 
You are a part, a, a water jar of stone full of water. And you need to be changed into wine. And you can't do that. Only Christ can do that. That's your biggest problem. If anyone trusts in Christ, they were water trapped in a jar full of incomplete cleansing. But then when they trust in Christ, they are now wine outside of the jar, free from the penalty of their sin by the Savior Jesus Christ the Lord. Fourth implication we could draw from it is this is a subtle introduction into Messianic ministry, and it's subtle on purpose. Who actually knew this miracle happened? Jesus, Mary, five disciples, and a handful of servants. That's it. Nobody else even knows. They're the only ones recorded. Now, I tended to think in the past this miracle, that for whatever reason, that Jesus has this moment like Elijah on uh, Mount Carmel with the water pots and makes this big scene about dumping the water onto the altar. I think Jesus gets, hey, get all the water pots in the middle of the dance floor. Everybody cleared out of the wedding. He's going to walk around it and he go, become wine. And then everybody rushes the pots and goes, oh my gosh, that's wine. That's not what happens at all. This is behind a closed door almost. The miracle itself. The guest didn't even know. The bride doesn't, she doesn't even know that water was turned into wine. The master of the feast doesn't know a miracle happened. He just thinks that this groom is a master showman. So he doesn't know the miracle happened. And he's, he only told the groom, hey, that there's, there's wine now. So the groom, we, we don't know what he did. He could have just taken the wind and said nothing to anyone. We were totally out of wine, babe, but, but then, man, it just came out of nowhere. I don't know what happened. He could have just been like, oh, I don't know where that came from, but thank goodness. Can you take a miracle from Jesus and not thank him and be totally unchanged by it? Absolutely. Luke 17, there are nine someones who are healed from leprosy by Jesus and thank him not. Don't come back to him at all. They're just like, hit the jackpot today. Now I don't have leprosy. I can do whatever I want and go back in society. One guy thanks him for it. You can receive a miracle and be unchanged and remain unsaved. So conservatively, though, at this miracle, we're looking at Mary, five disciples, a handful of servants, knowing the fullness of what actually happened. That's somewhat anticlimactic, isn't it? It's kind of a, ah, oh, that seems kind of low. Why, why, why is it not bigger than that? Doesn't that sound a lot like his birth? When God becomes a man and dwells among us, who knows? Who knows that that happened? A couple of foreign intellectuals know. A handful of local cowboys know. An old priest and an old widow. That's it. Those are the only people who know that God has taken on flesh. God's ways are not the world's ways. He came quietly to the earth. He opened his ministry quietly. He ministered relatively to a few, and he stayed local. But when he returns again, it will be loudly. It will be globally and he will not be proclaiming salvation to all who believe. He will be meeting out judgment to all who do not believe. The very opposite when he comes again. And we're supposed to see that. And he's chosen us as instruments of spreading this news in between those two comings. A quiet local one to a loud global one. 
we spread that news and tell everybody that the king is coming again. Now lastly, fifthly, the implication we can draw is this miracle fits John's theme. We always need to keep in mind the author's intent. What is he trying to get across to us? What is he trying to get to us from this text? And we know John's intent from chapter 20, verse 31, that I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that through him is salvation alone. The miracle manifested his glory. That's what it said in verse 11, right? It manifested his glory. We can't overlook that. The very glory of God was manifested when Jesus turned the water into wine. Manifest meaning they saw it. This wasn't just Jesus keeping the party alive. It was him displaying his glory. And John already told us that the disciples knew and saw his glory. Remember back in John chapter 1, verse 14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glories of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's seen the glory. The apostles saw the glory of Christ. And John says it in, in a fuller way, a longer way, in his other, his shorter letter, 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us, Jesus being made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. They've seen His glory in a couple of gallons of water being turned into wine and nobody knowing. That manifested His glory. What are the purpose? This is where we have to ask ourselves at the beginning of the Gospel of John. What are the purpose of these miracles? Why? And John calls them signs. He doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. John only records eight miracles. Seven really make up the bulk of his, his content. In the last chapter, he, he does the massive catch of fish for an eighth. But seven make up the whole structure of it. And he did that for a reason. These miracles are to point to something, i.e. they are to signify something. Signs signify, right? Signify is what it looks like when you write it out. R.C. Sproul said it like this. Thus, John is saying that Jesus did his miracles not for their own sake, but to point the observer and the reader beyond them to something that was significant to himself as the one who spoke the unvarnished word of truth. That is, miracles represented God's accreditation that Jesus was sent from him. But Jesus said that his signs pointed not only to his person, but also to his work of bringing the kingdom of God. All of these miracles, starting with the water and wine at this wedding, are to point us to the fact that Jesus is God and salvation is through him alone. Signs point to something else. Now, normally what will be going on summertime is lots of road trips. And normally what many of us would have friends and families that we know going to is you're going to Disney World. Now, imagine this. You load up the minivan. You got all the kids in. You're driving that long, lonely drive through the abandoned south to get to Orlando, the place where dreams are made of. 
And you go to Orlando and you're on the way and you're going to Disney World and you start seeing signs, Disney World in 500 miles, Disney World in 200 miles, Disney World in, in 50 miles, two miles to Disney World, one mile to Disney World. And as you get close, you start seeing the signs, the number gets smaller and smaller. The kids are just levitating in the back of their chair. They're so excited that they get there. And then you pull up to the parking lot of Disney World. And the biggest sign, the sign, is there that says Disney World, Mickey Mouse, it's 3D, all this stuff. The kids are seizing in the back seat. They're so excited. And you as dad get your hands on the wheel and go, man, weren't those signs incredible? All right, let's go home. You turn around and start driving back down I-10, coming back to Texas. You would have a full-scale prison riot in the back of your Honda Odyssey. If you accepted signs over the things that they signified, the kids were in it not to see the signs, but to actually go to Disney World. That's what's happening in the Gospel of John, really in all the Gospels. When we obsess over the miracles, we're just hugging road signs instead of the thing that they signify, the thing that they're pointing to. See, your biggest problem is not that you ran out of wine. It's not that you have cancer. It's not that your boss is evil or that your spouse has grown cold or that your car broke down. Your biggest problem is that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And if you have believed in that Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to us in the Scriptures, then you are in the place you are in Disney World. You're not in dealing with the signs anymore. That's where the substance actually is. That is the thing signified. You have been saved from the penalty of what your sins have. That's your biggest problem. That's all of our biggest problems. And it can only be remedied by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him, which involves the repenting of sins and the placing of faith in the person of Jesus. And in time and space, this miracle was used of God for the disciples to, what does it say? Verse 11, believe. It says they believed him. The high watermark of this miracle is not that the party didn't die. The high watermark of this miracle is not that Jesus showed us that he has power over creation. The high watermark of this miracle is that the disciples believed. They believed. And we can presume that the servants did too because it talks about their knowledge. They knew where it came from. That's the point of all Christ's miracles. The point is to draw his elect to himself in his amazing saving grace. Now in conclusion, I want to just read one Old Testament passage that links those two things together abundant wine and the forgiveness of sins that that's not a new thing jesus is just fulfilling what god has already said his messiah will do look at look at isaiah chapter 25 verses 6 through 9 so this is isaiah if you're not familiar this is old testament that happens way before jesus centuries before jesus written about the one who will come who is the messiah look at verse 6 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And look at verses 8 and 9. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him and rejoice in his salvation. Jesus swallows up death forever. That's what he does on the cross. That's what he's ultimately building to from that wedding at Cana onward. Swallowing up death forever. Leading us into a new day where something as expensive and rare and noble uh, and as... uh, qualifying to your wealth and importance as well-aged wine is just everywhere. It's not even worth mentioning it because of the one whose presence that you're in, the state that you're in, where all tears are gone. Nobody's even, there's not even a concept of, of weeping. You only weep when something is bad or something is wrong or something is broken. That's all gone. That's what Jesus is ushering in. He's the God of salvation that the faithful have been waiting for. This is our God will save us now that we've wrapped up Jesus's first miracle doesn't it sound a lot more impressive than how it's usually couched to us when we stop and think upon this miracle that blows us away of course this is how he would introduce himself of course this is what he would draw us to think about he's putting our minds at this first miracle he's sending our minds all the way to the end It has eschatological, an end times reality. There will be a real wedding, a final permanent wedding between the perfect groom and his chosen bride. And things like wine, well-aged wine, that's going to be everywhere. It's not even going to be worth mentioning, the things that we hold dear now. And the brokenness, the emptiness, and the sinfulness that we all experience and contribute to every day will be gone by one who can just speak and change old into new and and fulfill what was lacking in the old covenant and make it new, lasting, and permanent in the new covenant for all who believe. We can marvel at this introduction of Jesus as Messiah in a similar way that we can marvel over Jesus' simple introduction as a baby in a stable with just two people who were barely married. Let's pray. Father, we, we stand in awe, we sit in awe, we lie in awe of that you can accomplish so much in such a simple act and that we can see your redemptive plan that's been strung through many generations over millennia. You've always had
these people who, who trust and believe in him will experience this new life here on earth, but will experience the, the eternal new life as the permanent bride of Christ, perfectly loved for, perfectly cared for, and taken care of. Ambassadors of that glory and uh, pursuers.